0: but for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, posted August 24, 2022, titled Archaeological Finds for the Old Testament, featuring Josh Bowen.
1: Does archaeology support the Bible?
2: Uh, kind of. Not not really. Maybe. But what do you mean by support?
0: Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian, Ahem, former, Christians. former Christians, take a look at the claims of Christians.
1: Today our guest is Dr. Titus Kennedy, a professional field archaeologist and author of Unearthing the Bible.
0: Today my guest is Dr. Josh Bowen. He has a PhD in Assyriology, with a minor in Hebrew Bible from John Hopkins University, with a master's degree in both Old Testament and Near Eastern Studies. He's the author of a number of books, including Did the Old Testament Endorse Slavery? The Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament, Volume 1, and the brand new The Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament, Volume 2, fresh on Amazon that you should definitely order today.
1: What we're going to do is look at 20 archaeological discoveries.
0: While I plan to revisit more from Titus Kennedy in future videos, it would take too long to properly address all 20 today. So we'll look at a few with Dr. Josh. And we'll give you some general tools to think about any such claim for yourself.
1: That offer insight into ancient biblical culture. And each in different ways, which should provide support for the reliability of the scriptures. So in
2: 2017, William Deaver published a monumental volume on the archaeology of the Bible. In it, he convincingly argued that archaeology should be considered a primary source of information. Until maybe like 40 years ago, it was quite often assumed that the Old Testament was generally historically reliable. But as excavations have continued and archaeological methods have become more sophisticated, this is just no longer the case, particularly for the earlier periods reported in the Hebrew Bible. Now, with all that being said, archaeology is absolutely able to lend great insight into ancient cultural practices, many of which are found in the biblical texts, but this, this is in no way indicative of the reliability of the texts, depending on what you mean by that. I suspect we're going to find out as we move forward.
1: We will look at each of these briefly with the goal of providing an overview of the entirety of the Old Testament so you can have a macro perspective of the kinds of findings that corroborate key people, events, and stories in biblical history.
2: This is unfortunately part of the problem with things like Christian apologetics. Sean seems to be coming to the text with his conclusion already in hand, like the Bible is the inerrant inspired word of God and therefore must be historically reliable. He seems to want to confirm his conclusion by using archaeology. This, again, is how many people operated earlier in the field of biblical archaeology. Unfortunately, this has not gone well, to say the least. In the Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament series, my goal is essentially to go where the data lead us. We are in no way beginning with our conclusion. Rather, I'm, I'm citing and synthesizing the consensus positions of scholars in the relevant fields in, in order to give the reader the reputable information they need to understand what the experts think about these
1: topics based on the evidence let's start with number one Atrahasis what is that find
3: Atrahasis is an ancient story an an epic or a myth it might be called from Mesopotamia and in particular this was recorded on clay tablets now the Atrahasis story mostly contains a flood story with a little bit of a creation time prelude but fairly recently The oldest tablet of Atrahasis was rediscovered, so to speak, uh, by the British Museum. It was brought in by a private collection. And when the curator was reading it, he noticed some lines from it that had not appeared on some of the other Atrahasis tablets. And in particular, there was one talking about bringing the animals on to the boat two by two. And so he saw the immense importance of this. And he asked the owner if he could hold on to the tablet and translate it. So he went through, he made the translation of this new tablet and found out it was actually from about 1900 BC. It was older than all the other Atrahasis tablets. And it was also the closest of any of the other flood stories to the Noah account in Genesis. And so what this shows us, at the very least, is that people way back in the time of abraham knew about the flood story and had essentially the same details in in their story as what was recorded about noah in the book of genesis just showing us the antiquity of the account of the flood and that people from various parts of the ancient world agreed that there was some kind of flood event with a man in a boat
2: who was saved what we have is the mesopotamian accounts of the flood myth preserved in different forms and different literary texts in both sumerian and akkadian that date back to the beginning of the second millennium bce now there is intertextuality which is just a fancy word for how two texts interact with or influence each other between stories like Atrahasis and the Epic of Gilgamesh, Tablet 11. And this flood story was used by the later writers of Genesis 6 through 9. So, for example, we see in Genesis six fourteen, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make the ark into compartments, and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now, the Hebrew word for pitch that appears in this verse is highly suggestive of dependence of the biblical flood story on the Mesopotamian accounts. This word appears only here in Genesis 6.14. It shows up nowhere else in the Bible. Conversely, its Akkadian cognate, kupru, is very common and shows up in a wide variety of contexts, including, as you might guess, the flood stories in both atrahasis and the epic of gilgamesh so in a, in other words in both atrahasis and the epic of gilgamesh in the sections describing the building of the ark this very common word kupru for pitch or bitumen is used to describe how the ark is supposed to be sealed but in genesis 6:14 we see this same semitic word in the exact same context But more than that, this is the only place where the word appears in the Old Testament. In fact, there's another word for pitch that appears elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, a different word. This means that the Hebrew language already had a perfectly suitable word that referred to a substance that was used to seal the outside of something to make it watertight. And yet the author of this story opted for an entirely foreign cognate in its place. Now, examples like this show us that the Mesopotamian flood traditions were used in the formation of the story of Noah in Genesis. Not that there is some independent flood that is actually being preserved in literary form.
3: The writings of Moses and Genesis are very, very criticized, especially the patriarchal period as being uh, a late, late invention and really anachronistic, not based on historical reality. But this is something that tells us the very least, people knew about this flood story, this one man who built a boat and was saved from it. It wasn't just a, a creation or even a copy of the Israelites from much later.
0: Why should we prefer a literary dependence conclusion over the
2: notion of independent recordings of an actual event? Well. There are any number of reasons, but outside of the example from the flood story that I just said, there are two that stand out and are pretty easy to explain. The first is the supposed timing of the flood, according to the Bible, and the other is the evidence that we have for literary dependence. So with the first, if we go by the Old Testament, we should have a worldwide flood sweeping over the land in the middle of the third millennium BCE. Well, we know an awful lot about that time, and there is uninterrupted culture during that period. We also have absolutely no hint that a massive flood swept over from the written documents, which is fairly extensive from this period. Perhaps more damning, though, is the fact that we don't see the flood traditions forming in Mesopotamia until around the beginning of the second millennium, half a millennium after the purported time of the flood event we would have to believe that no one said anything about this massive flood for 500 years, only to write about it in several different forms 500 years later. The other reason that literary dependence is certain is the amount of dependence that we see in the Old Testament outside of the flood story. Like The Old Testament draws from Ugaritic, Egyptian, and, of course, Mesopotamian texts in many different places. So it is absolutely unsurprising to see it here.
1: Archaeological discovery number two, the Code of Hammurabi. What does this find? The
3: Code of Hammurabi is one of the most famous ancient law codes. Hammurabi.
2: That sounds familiar somehow. Well, as you might expect, Megan was the brains behind our channel plans. When she was at Johns Hopkins working on her PhD, she taught a class on the use of digital media, to bring the ancient world into the modern era, making the texts and cultural information more readily available to the public. She called that class Hammurabi in the Digital Age, which I thought was pretty cool. Of course, Hammurabi is the famous king of the old Babylonian period who reigned in the middle of the 18th century. And when we started our YouTube channel, Megan suggested that we call it Digital Hammurabi, and thus the legend was born
3: for the purposes of my book what i discussed in there had to do with the social customs of the patriarchs and in particular a slave price in the joseph story there's a really important section there actually three of the laws talk about the price of a slave in the 18th century bc when this was written and if we look at the joseph story in genesis chapter 37 we see that he was sold for 20 shekels of silver. Now, that may seem like a useless detail that's in the biblical text there. It doesn't tell us anything theologically or spiritually, but it's included in there. Well, if we go and then we look at the time of Joseph, we see that's right around this time of the Code of Hammurabi, and we match those up, we see they have exactly the same price for a slave. And that's important because The prices changed over time. If we go earlier, we're going to see five shekels of silver, then 10 shekels of silver. You finally get to 20. So the time of Moses, it's 30. And then you go on to the divided kingdom period, and it's 50. So they were changing over time. This tells us that the element of the Joseph story here about the price of slaves is absolutely accurate for the time period in which... The Bible places Joseph.
2: Look, using the price of a commodity from a legal collection to argue for the historical veracity of a formation story of the Old Testament is misguided at best. The real problem here is that there is no evidence to support any of these stories. But when you begin with your conclusion, you know, that the Old Testament must be inspired and inerrant and the Word of God— you will look to see if the scene on which the story plays out is consistent with what the story says. But this is just not how history is done. What complicates these matters further is that culture in the ancient Near East changes pretty slowly, particularly compared to what we experience today. And the biblical writers weren't stupid. like They knew how to write a story that had verisimilitude, right? The stage had many components that would fit with the period that the events were purported to have happened in. But that in no way indicates that the stories are historically reliable.
1: Archaeological discovery number six, Scarab of Amenhotep III. What's this?
3: So scarabs were these little artifacts, little ornaments that were shaped like a scarab beetle. And then on the bottom side, the belly side, the Egyptians would often put an inscription there and many of these have inscriptions which have the name of the pharaoh who was in power at the time so this particular one has the name of amenhotep III inscribed on it this one was found at jericho and what this does is it allows us to date a particular layer or an archaeological site because the scarabs were much like coins they were made during the reign of a certain king or ruler, and then after that, uh, they often used them in burials, uh, or they were they were just uh, gotten rid of, discarded in the lair. So at Jericho, if we find this Amenhotep the third scarab there, then that suggests that Jericho was occupied during his reign. So he started ruling just a bit before 1400 BC and then ruled for maybe 30 years after that so he's right around the time of the conquest and the initial settlement of the land and this was found with many other Egyptian scarabs which also had rulers from roughly that time period from the 15th century BC uh, for example Hatshepsut who ruled in the early 15th century BC through most the third who ruled early to mid-15th uh, century BC. So it tells us people were living in Jericho during the time of Moses and Joshua, and then, then it stops, indicating that the city was abandoned or destroyed. The
2: scarabs from Jericho can really only tell us the earliest and associated archaeological context can be dated, but not the latest. Like if you find a jacket with a coin dated 2009
0: in the pocket, That means the jacket can't have been lost before 2009, but it could
2: have been lost any year after that. Look, scarabs can certainly be used for dating, and it is absolutely not my field of expertise, but scholars will tell you that you have to use them with great caution. The the real problem with Jericho, though, is not solved by scarabs. Jericho, along with most of the other sites said to have been destroyed by the Israelites in Joshua, were either unoccupied or minimally occupied at the time, and, or, not destroyed. Does, and then it stops, tell us anything about an end date? Well, it doesn't. That's the problem. The occupation at the city of Jericho doesn't just stop at the end of the 15th century. I mean, there is minimal occupation at the site, but there is occupation and we have absolutely no evidence of a destruction taking place at the end of the 15th century, much less a formidable city with towering walls that came crashing down.
3: Jericho is often called out as this archaeological site where we have no evidence that anyone was there at the time of the conquest, and so the conquest must not have happened. And that whole argument is based on the chronology of the archaeological material found there uh, pottery and scarabs in this case well the the scarabs that were found there by john garstang when he excavated they indicate that people were living there through the 1400s bc to the time of amenhotep iii again who ruled right around 1400 bc and then it stops so That tells us people indeed were living there at the time that Joshua came, and then they weren't, and the city got destroyed.
2: So, as I hinted at earlier, the real problem with Jericho, as with Arad, Heshbon, Debon, and Ai, for example, is that the biblical account requires that these cities have been destroyed. Jericho, with its mighty walls, was completely destroyed, according to the Bible, as was the city of Ai. But... The story that archaeology tells is quite different and problematic for this interpretation. Arad in the Negev, Heshbon and Debon in the Transjordan are all completely unoccupied during the Late Bronze Age. Now, I, I won't go into the details here, but archaeology allows scholars to determine when a site was occupied and if it was destroyed and generally when. They do this by digging down into the site and analyzing the stratigraphy, or the occupation layers that formed on the site over the centuries, along with the material culture that is found in each layer. Now, I go into some detail about how archaeology is done in Volume 1 of the Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament, and I discuss exactly how we know all of this about sites like Jericho and I in Volume 2. But the short answer is, there would have been no city for the Israelites to destroy. Similarly, the massive fortifications of the third and early second millennia were no more during the Late Bronze Age, and only a small village-sized occupation existed on the tell. As with Arad, Heshbon, and Dibon, I was also unoccupied during the Late Bronze Age and had been abandoned for nearly a thousand years. The archaeological record just does not comport with the biblical narrative.
1: It's really important for this video that we give people a sense of the scope, kind of 30,000-foot view of archaeological discoveries supporting the flood, the exodus, uh, the conquest, the existence of David, Isaiah, on to supporting Daniel and Nehemiah.
2: So the first half of each atheist handbook to the Old Testament volume uh, gives the reader background information including telling the story of the Old Testament, uh, explaining what the history of the ancient Near East was, and how archaeology is done, both in theory and in practice. The second half of each volume focuses in on specific hot-button issues that atheists and skeptics will often debate online or at the Thanksgiving dinner table. In volume two, for example, we discuss the archaeology of the conquest under Joshua, the historical reliability of the Exodus story, uh, divine commands of violence and genocide, sex crimes in the Old Testament, and even did the Old Testament plagiarize? My goal was to combine general background information and specific, more detailed analyses on specific topics. I think this lets the reader come away very well informed and even armed to have meaningful conversations.
1: I'm curious, given that you've studied so many different archaeological finds, are there any areas where you look and you're like, wow, the archaeological record at this point seems to contradict the biblical account? And if so, what are they and how do you make sense of them?
3: I can't say any archaeological discoveries clearly contradict the biblical record.
2: In many cases, archaeological discoveries do clearly contradict the biblical record. Like, as a general rule of thumb, the earlier you go back in time, as reported by the Old Testament, the less historically reliable the text becomes. For example, when you read about the interactions between Israel and Judah and the Neo-Assyrian Empire in the first millennium, outside of the purported miracles, the Old Testament does a pretty good job. However, as you go back to, like, the formation of the nation with the Exodus and the Conquest, as well as like the patriarchs and the primeval history in Genesis 1 through 11, it gets less and less historically reliable. Archaeology has demonstrated this to be the case time and again, very much to the chagrin of many of these early biblical scholars.
3: We do have cases where we have questions and we don't have all the answers. But I would just say that we've been in that situation many times before, and when more discoveries are made, mm. we understand what's going on. And time and time again, what we're finding in archaeology continues to confirm the historical reliability of the Bible.
2: We cannot, we must not, begin with our conclusion. Look, theological commitments are incredibly problematic for coming to the data objectively. If you've determined that your interpretation of the old testament is correct then you're going to come to the data i think as sean and titus have done here attempting to find points that confirm your position instead of that we need to understand all the data points that something like archaeology can tell us and then formulate models that best account for those data points and we need to hold our conclusions in an open hand Because scholarship is always moving forward, making more and more precise conclusions. But this will only be possible if we're not practicing apologetics and defending our position at all costs.
1: Have you seen a shift in the time you've studied this or just looking back on the the field of archaeology more favorable towards the Bible? Or even with these finds, would you say that many, if not most, archaeologists still are critical towards the Bible as a historical source?
3: You know, it goes up and down a little bit, but overall the trend is actually more skepticism towards the Bible. So if we went all the way back to the 1930s, 1940s, uh, many scholars would be much more favorable to... The Bible as a, a useful or even accurate historical source. Then, then in the 80s and 90s, it was getting really bad. I think because we're at a point where culturally academia was so skeptical towards the Bible, and yet there were st- there were quite a few things that hadn't been discovered yet. We've made a lot of discoveries in the last 30 years, but uh, today what most scholars think about in terms of the the bible and its historicity old testament if we're just talking about that is uh, they basically have thrown out everything prior to the reign of david as as mythical legendary unhistorical and don't even look into that for the most part Uh, the the main debate now has shifted really to the time of the monarchy period in israel uh, in terms of What was the extent of the kingdom of David and Solomon? You know, how accurate, how historically reliable are the narratives about the kings and then about the time of the Babylonian exile in the Persian period. So they've basically written off the exodus and the conquest and the patriarchs as just that. That's not historical. We have no archaeology that connects or demonstrates that.
2: Is
0: this an accurate portrayal of the state of scholarship?
2: It absolutely is. The problem that I have with how this is being presented is that he's implying that this is not due to advancements in the field of archaeology and the increased amount of data that informs the models of academics in the field. Instead, he seems to be intimating that some underlying skepticism keeps them from seeing the truth. the fact is, and I talk about this in both volumes one and two of the Atheist Handbook, the reason that biblical archaeologists have moved from considering the Old Testament to be historically reliable in its presentations of periods before the United Monarchy is that archaeology and history in general have shown it to be unreliable. In fact, as I show in the book, many of these archaeologists were not only Christians, but they were excavating sites in Palestine specifically to find support for the assumed-to-be-accurate claims of the Bible. When the evidence showed the opposite to be the case, it led the field to seek other models to explain the data points. In other words, it's not some anti-God or anti-Bible or anti-supernatural bias that is driving this change.
1: Dr. Kennedy. Thanks so much for great answers. Hey, I
3: appreciate you having me on the show, Sean.
0: You bet. Dr. Josh. Thanks so much for great answers. Hey,
2: I appreciate you having me on the show, Paul.
0: You bet. And if you don't already have your copies of Volume 1, and now Volume 2, of the Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament, check out the links in the description below and get your copies today. Tap on the playlist on screen now for more Apologia collaborations with Dr. Josh, and I'll see you over there. Later.